Hi, this is a Mind Rolling podcast, a new podcast from、uh, myself, Raghu Marcus, and David Silver. And、um, we should talk about the、uh, genesis of mind rolling. We don't have the slightest idea、right? <laughs> of, of what that means. You know,、uh, picked it up from.、Uh, I mean, it means something to me. I mean, we can say that it was picked up from a Tibetan term. You know, there are some incredible lamas who have in their prefix to their name the mind roller, so and so Rinpoche. So <clears throat> it was、um, in my mind, though, it was more about not getting stuck. In any one habitual mind place, that it was the mind was rolling. The mind was available and free to be able to encounter anything、um, and not have a preconceived notion or judgment. That's not bad, eh? That's good. That's good. But you know, I've Googled mind rolling rollers, whatever, and it's one of the few things that there is nothing. I know. Not a word. So, except these people that are, you know, the honorific is mind roller. Yeah, and they don't want anyone to know about it because there's no information. It's hermetic knowledge. Well, we like it. It's nice. It's good. And it's about two immigrants who came to America to be successful in life.、Um, actually, that's not why I came. Um, I, I just had to get out of Montreal where I was. It was so cold. I can't tell you. I couldn't take it.、Hmm. Um, and you were in England, and you were propelled out of there.、What? I had no idea what to do. I graduated. I wrote a postgraduate thing, and I had no clue as to what to do with my life. But then I was lucky. A tutor, a tutor, which I had at university, taught in America and got me a job here. So I came、hmm. here. I came to teach in 1966. So Dave ends up in Boston teaching school, proper English gentleman, and I ended up in Haight Ashbury, basically living in Berkeley and commuting, hitchhiking to Haight Ashbury to go,、um, you know, get pot and stuff. And、um, and th- I got a whole formative, you know, education、uh, down in、uh, California at that time, especially coming from Montreal. But、uh, you know, I mean, we're we're talking about the. Um, the things that made us receptive to the changes that were going to come—you know—that's kind of some of the stuff that we want to talk about. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, I, I think I know I had some formative—use、uh, that word again—experiences, and they were、um, of a nature that I understood there was another something going on other than the senses. And and for me there was music. So I think we're gonna music's gonna definitely be、uh, something that we'll want to talk about because we're both so、uh, closely associated with it,、uh, both、uh, as a lifestyle and career-wise.、Um, and psychedelics, which launched everything in terms of being able to have、uh, some idea of a consciousness that we could、uh, find a way to happiness, basically. So I.、Um, Mine was with John Coltrane in Montreal. God, you know, I don't think I was more than seventeen years old. My favorite things completely went out, you know, and、uh, and then later when I when I did end up in Berkeley with Ali Akbar Khan, these were two major major、uh, transformative experiences. So that was kind of my beginning, and then living in the culture, 
and you know we've always talked about that you know the berkeley riots and uh and you went out there at that time I as did. well didn't you? i did but just like yourself i think i wasn't much of a rioter you know i just i hated getting beaten it was a small thing, but I just didn't like people hitting me with billy clubs and throwing tear gas at me. Really? So my my uh, great principles would evaporate very quickly when I was running from the police, particularly in Berkeley. <laughs> and it didn't represent really where I was at, I don't think. I mean, I was into the, mu- the music and the, you know, the whole trip. And violence was the last thing. But of course, the war was going on and everybody felt the same way that it was just an atrocity, one after, after another. And of course, in those days, not that differently from now. You were thought of as being some kind of traitor if you said anything against the war. But eventually, so many people are in the streets, including me, that, that it had to end. People yeah. say it wasn't to do with the thing in the streets. Don't know what they were talking about. Because it was no. really a big deal. But I think what, we, what happened to me was that, you know, I was pretty British, but, you know, kind of, into the beats and things like that in 1965. I knew who Kerouac was, Ginsburg, Burroughs. I didn't really mm. get it all, but I knew that was more what... It, it spoke to me more than anything else. And then when that the beats were replaced by, you know, the Beatles, it's sort of interesting that Beat to Beatles. It was mm-hmm. the Beatles mm-hmm. that pushed me over the hedge because mm. very soon, as great as they were, they became greater. And they got involved in, at the very least, shall we say, you know alternative consciousness it was you know by revolver was the album as i remember it where tomorrow never knows and within you without you and all these great songs Mm. that i knew even then were connected with eastern um um spirituality Mm. you know so that was a moment for me yeah just to remind folks by the way in a future episode of mind rolling um we are. David's going to talk about uh, his uh, relationship with the Beatles and and a mm. and work that he did with them on um, on some uh, video back uh, in, in the day. Um, that is pretty incredible stuff. Uh, I want to go back to the protest on the street thing that you 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 didn't want to be touched, beaten. Never mind. It wasn't my favorite. No. Thing. Well, I I have some terrible. Admission on that one. I was traveling when the windows at the Bank of America were being broken down in Telegraph Avenue. And I was traveling in a few streets away with a friend of mine, good close friend of mine. And suddenly he said, Jesus, I'm feeling stone. And I go, really? I don't, we, did you, you haven't been smoking or anything, smoking pot? No, I don't understand it. Rolls the window down. And wafts of tear gas come in into the car. <laughs> so we, we were, if you were going on the streets afraid of being, and we were a little ways from that altogether in terms of the stone music scene, you know, on the West Coast. And of course we, we railed again, railed against the, you know, the war and everything, but no, we weren't, we weren't on those streets either. I have to admit it. Well, yeah. I mean, I, most people weren't most of the time. You know what I mean? Like no matter how, the, the the actual movements in Washington and where you were and, and Cambridge, where I was, was a big, you know, because all the colleges there. So there were always hundreds of thousands of people in the Boston Common, the Cambridge Common. But nevertheless, within that, there was something great going on that wasn't just anger and, and, and you know, shame. You know, they're all ashamed. They were paying taxes and they're bombing these, the peasantry of North Vietnam into the Stone Age. And, and it's our money. 
but the, also there was a draft and mm. kids were really afraid of getting, not so much afraid, that's the wrong word. They really didn't want to go to Vietnam, either to die or, you know, to have their lives interrupted. But I, the greatest memories, and there, there are memories now, was the music and the community, as it were. Like suddenly finding that you could go places in America and in other countries and meet people who you could have sort of immediately, you know, grok with. They we were like the same things. Mm. Jimi Hendrix, and and that's a, a, a real simplification. But I think you get it. Jimi Hendrix says it all. That's sort of well, incredible I, music. Yeah, know? in terms of even going backwards just for a second uh, about, uh, you know, when we got to the war, the war was going on. But even before that, the kind, the level of unhappiness that we had, you know, that I had, uh, you know, was, was pr pretty spectacular. And I didn't even leave. In, I mean, neither of us, I, we didn't live in the United States. I lived in Canada, you lived in England, but we had all of these same influences of, of a very, very similar uh, society that we were dealing with certain mores and certain really fundamental boxed in kind of truths that uh you know how do we get out of it and the one who expressed that was bob dylan i mean he saved my ass when i was 15 i mean in terms of okay you know there is something and then alan ginsburg and you mentioned him mm. um but you know that that made music way more than any kind of I mean, it still is today. Obviously, there are bands that people identify with that say something that has they have going on that they, you know, they vibe with. But I don't know. It was pretty strong back then. I mean, you talk about someone like a Dylan and, you know, we talk about the Beatles and so on that are still so relevant today. So, you know, that's obviously stood this uh, you know, Raga, I mean, today's musicians have got almost half a century of that tradition to run, where before... The Beatles, yeah, there was Elvis and things, but there wasn't any music that expanded beyond I Love You Baby and I Wish You Were Still Here. Yeah. And so we we were kind of the beginning of that. And I went to see someone perform a couple of weeks ago in New York who was 24 years old and wasn't impersonating Dylan, but he had that same vibe of kind of, you know, an expanded consciousness looking at the world from his point of view. It wasn't just simplistic nonsense. It was fantastic. Yeah. Now, Dylan was only that age when, when he broke big. He was in his mid-20s or something, right? But I think this generation has inherited that. We didn't have, there wasn't much before us. It was Frank Sinatra. It was great. I like Frank Sinatra. But <laughs> it hardly changed your consciousness, to say the least. It didn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, actually, in a way, you know, there's... The one other element that came in, I mean, we've talked about how we both, you know, the psychedelics, the, the music, the culture, the war, you know, how deeply affected we were, you know, by, and, and so there was a surge going on. Um, uh, we were certainly ready for acid. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Richard Alpert and Tim Leary absolutely set us up to know that it was okay. That was a big deal. It's okay. You know, and uh, and give a set and setting and all of that stuff. So, um, I think you know, for me, that obviously, I mean, you know, these are cliched stuff. We don't even have to say anything. Both of us had opened the door, and that door to me included um, suddenly finding out about stuff from the east. Now, uh, your first 
encounter that way? My first encounter was because of my television show, which I was, you know, the name of the show was Was Henry Mr. Silver? And the theory behind the show was a, a question was asked this week. And me and my team of, of uh, filmmakers and lunatics would try and answer the question. When the Beatles got involved with the Maharishi, Mahesh Yogi, that was the first time I'd ever thought about anything like that. And because I was, like everyone else, the Beatles sort of lapped it up, whatever they said or did, he sort of got interested. I, I got to meet with the Maharishi, and he gave me a mantra, which is what TM was originally all about. You know, they gave you a mantra and taught you how to meditate. And I met this guy, and I'd never met anyone even remotely like him. This tiny person sitting on a table in front of me with twinkling blue eyes that never seemed to stop twinkling, and a voice, a very high voice, and extremely sort of full of loving vibes. And I was just sitting there in my jacket and tie thinking, what is this? I don't know what this is. And that was the first time. And I have to say that I did TM for a few years after that and learned how to meditate, sort of. So without Maharishi, I wouldn't have. That was anyway, that's how it started. Well, I have another mission, unfortunately. First, we had this protest on the street thing that, I also got a mantra, TM mantra, and uh, my girlfriend and I and other people, we were in this little communal thing, right? And we lived in an apartment, and right next door to that apartment was an empty one. Perfect place to go and have some relative privacy if you were living with 10 people or whatever at that time. Um, so <laughs> off we did, and we would do our mantra properly and repeat it over and over for at least two minutes <laughs> then we'd all have sex uh -huh. again that was my introduction uh -huh. to uh -huh. to meditation and um lovely actually it would it it's practiced today by various new age tantric groups by the way that type of uh, do you have their names yeah <laughs> okay uh, so it was nice yeah no i uh, it turned out though they gave the mantra you know i'm not supposed to tell the mantra but can I tell no you? No one's listening. <laughs> okay, it was Ainamo. And I kept repeating this, not knowing from nothing. And then I get to India eventually and meet the monkey god Hanuman and realize the person who gave me the mantra made a mistake. And I've been repeating this, you know, this phrase that meant nothing. For years I tried. Well, anyhow, as I said, I didn't do it very often. Yeah. But, um, and then we, we do have another bisected event. Bisected? It, bisected in. The, I'm really <laughs> it's glad. It's a new word. Went, no, I'm glad it went that way instead of where I thought yeah. it was going. There's nothing wrong the, with bisexuality, but I don't remember. It could be a Freudian. Thing, but it's fine. Um, so, uh, Mayor Baba, tell me about Mayor Baba. Yeah, I, I, I got into Mayor Baba, really, and I didn't know him from Adam, literally. But again, you see, it was about the, the who, Peter Townsend the, you know, spectacular lead guitar player, I suddenly found out that he was into the Meher Baba. So again, being a complete follower of English rock and roll, whatever they did, I did. You know? <laughs> so I got into Meher Baba and did really, you know, read his discourses. And even though my understanding, I think, was a little bit intellectualized at the time, to say the least, I did, it, it, was, com I, it was compelling to me. So, and you had the, I don't know, you had Meher Baba too. Saw the picture beautiful he's smiling and it says don't worry be happy and that that was highly appealing to a depressed person 
<laughs> Although I was getting better because I had done some psychedelics. So it's definitely feeling better in those days. Yeah. But he was definitely an introduction. And um, the other introduction was, in, in terms of Eastern thought, um, Hare Krishna guys. Yeah. Right? We used to go down there on Sunday because they had the best brunch in town. The best. Um, and oh. you had it in wherever? In, in Brooklyn. Oh, in Brooklyn. Again, because of the media, because PBS, actually, or the burgeoning PBS in 1970, yeah, asked me to do a mini-doc about the Hare Krishna movement. I knew about them, and I chanted occasionally, but I went with a film crew to a Hare Krishna oh. um, place and met with the, you know, the chief, sort of, chief of it, and he was an ex-Andy Warhol... Chief Hare Krishna. Of New Brooklyn. Of New you know, Brooklyn. Mr. Yeah. Hare Krishna, Brooklyn <laughs> department, and... I met with him, and he was an Andy Warhol guy. He'd worked in the factory, Andy Warhol's place where he did all the um, cell screening of, uh, and all that stuff, all the Campbell's soup cans. So it was a bit weird, this bald gentleman with a little flock of hair at the back. <laughs> and I, he met me and my crew, and he was just great. And the food was amazing. So I was, mm. But mm. they were serious, and they, they were... They were serious very, chanters, for sure. Very much. Yeah. And that was my first experience with yeah. chanting. And it was a good one. Really. Let's say some rather odd people might have populated when you actually went to the temple and hung out for more than lunch. Yeah, yes. 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 But uh, Not to speak of the airports, because that was the, the whole airports, cliche about right. them, yeah. that they just approach people in every airport. You can imagine, you know, giving you the Bhagavad Gita or something, or selling it to you maybe. But, you know, and people got annoyed about it. I remember how hostile people were at first to the Hare Krishna people. And I thought that was a bit, a bit much. They were nice. They were, but then, of course, you know, the history of the Hare Krishna movement in the United States was very checkered. And yeah. Later, there were some real problems. Yeah, which we won't go into now. No, because it's Let's negative. Not. Yeah. Anyhow, but those were definitely tremendous for many people. Actually, you talk about you. Everybody knows. Yeah, we had lunch over at Hare Krishna Temple, so you heard Hare Krishna and the Maha Mantra for sure. That was definitely no matter what yes. other loony shit was going on there so yeah. uh yeah and mayor baba was certainly part of as you say i mean pete townsend really everybody knew that that was his guru at that time and that was an unusual thing yeah. you know um and then of course maharishi went with what he did with the beatles so th you know there was a few others but they certainly were well, right such there. Dinanda. and such a denanda yeah. yeah who was in, a woodstock New York, yeah. you know the great 69 right. woodstock Sachidananda in all his guru glory uh, sat and chanted. Did he chant or did he do Om Shanti? What did he do? I forgot. I don't remember. Anyway, it was there at Woodstock, you know. Mm. So that sort of says something. Yeah. That, and, and by the way, at Woodstock, there were many people teaching uh, Hatha Yoga, I found out. Yeah. You know, little groups of people who would be doing, you know, asanas. And, you know, that was in 1969. Yeah, so right. Way before anything. Yeah. Um, so then here we are. Geez, I came back myself uh, just to be a little bit chronological. So it would be fair to say, nice way to meet some people to know a little bit about that. Um, by the way, not to digress too much, but w we we have to um, give a big clap for Duncan Trussell, who really uh, who has this wonderful. Uh, podcast Duncan Trussell Family Hour. You got to check it out. It's great. He's great. Yeah. And uh, we, he just uh, got in touch with me and suggested that you know uh, podcasting would be a good idea. And and then I told him about my friend here, 
And so the thing that he brought up that, that is really part of what we're thinking about as we do this is the parallel between some of the things that was that were happening in the late 60s and the turn of the century and the parallels to today and and certainly the war and and it's what has gone on the depression recession um which has made life very very difficult for for many many people um and the political atmosphere the polarization so there is some real connectivity from then to now. And, you know, his thing was, you know, you guys, you know, you floundered around then, and but something managed to come to you that you connected with that gave you a direction, whatever it was. And, and so, you know, we started a relationship by just talking about that and, and talking about how, you know, um, there's so many similarities to today and what people want to know about themselves and know about, you know, how to navigate this stuff. So, um, you know, I think that that's, you know, that's certainly something I wanted to talk about. Well, the, well, you just mentioned the parallel part of it. One of the most clear parallels is the fact that young, younger people, as we were then, become very disenchanted and actually angry when they see the government doing things that are clearly, you know, wrong like wasting billions of dollars on a war that didn't have to be fought because of a lie that was told about it. That's very similar to the Gulf mm. of Tonkin incident mm -hmm. in 19, whatever it was, 65 or whenever, when Johnson said that some American ships, whatever, were attacked. It never happened. And that precipitated a much huge escalation of the Vietnam mm. War. Still going on. So that's one parallel, which you rightly point out. But the other parallel is there is a, a, a growingly, a, a growing demographic of people who are doing yoga, who are interested in alternative lifestyles and both green communities, shared lifestyles. Um, that's even, I would say it was even stronger now in actuality in terms of people doing it in various cities and mm. centers mm. than it even was then. Then it was more of a scattershot thing, I think. Mm. You know, you, you you might gain insights through the psychedelics you did. And not as wise, seemingly. People I, really, really went left on some of this stuff, especially the drugs. Not that, you know, there's there's yeah. obvious drug abuse, uh, you know, still here now. But uh, Well, social networks have changed everything, too. Yeah. Because, you know, when we were thinking about all this stuff, I used to work for a thing called Radical Software in 1968 and 69. And it was a magazine devoted to the future of media. And we used to talk then about things that became cable television. We didn't think of the internet, but we did think about connectivity. People wanted to have the media serve as a connective tissue between people of like minds. And that's happening now, much in a huger way. And the way it's shaking down is that the, the activities, the green activities, the spiritual activities, the social activists, justice, all of that is being served very well by people participating with each other yeah. In a much easier way than yeah. back then. No, absolutely. That's... But the parallel, Rago, is that, you know, I'm sure that people now go through the same thing, which is this kind of schizophrenia where you can do yoga and you can find uh, and find consciousness and be conscious and awareness and all that. Meanwhile, the country's going to the dogs and it's being run by puppets and it's uh, the political scene is just as, just as disappointing yeah. as it was then, alongside the developments of social networks and... And the huge amount of people now doing yoga yeah. and meditation. Yeah, no. So uh, yeah. they're real. These parallels are real for sure, and it's uh, and it's certainly interesting. And I think as we go along, love to talk to other people about it as well who are experiencing it more directly. 
uh, as as because of their their age and so on. And you know, um, do you want to talk a bit about um, your recollections of the Leary Alpert Ramdas beginnings and you know and all that how it affected you and and me too. Like what was that? What, and you had to like put it in a few sentences. What is the significance of that whole psychedelic movement when you really think about it? It's big for me, I know. You know. Well, every one of us. I mean, geez. When I can still remember, at the first time you you take it, I mean, seemingly is is the moment. You almost, I mean, I don't even know how much more you got to do it. That one time. I mean, I remember, you know, I didn't have a crazy amount of trips, but enough so I can't remember one to another except a few of them, right? Mm-hmm. And and this, you know, the unity of all things, we are all part of each other. Once that happened to you, you could never go back to that egocentric idea of I am mm-hmm. in some way. Now, in the, you know, we were young. When I got that message, you know, living that day to day, I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about, it's almost like faith. You got a little tiny kernel, but it's, faith isn't quantitative. It's, you know, and it's not qualitative. It's beyond, <laughs> it's beyond time and space. It really is. Um, but we can, because we're relative, we're talking here, you know, it can increase. It does increase by virtue of experience and you know, more wisdom and, and letting go of mind. The more you can let it go of the mind, then the more of that faith. So mm-hmm. acid gave, as far as I'm concerned, correct mm-hmm. me if you had any kind of different experience, but the unity of all things, and therefore you could not be that separate ego and, and really buy into that. That's absolutely the way I remember it. There was a scary moment, as there is apparently with a lot of shamanistic experiences when people take substances to liberate themselves, there's always like a little dark corridor that you go into when you're losing all of the preconceptions. Called dying. Dying to something else. And I remember when I was taking LSD and peyote and the rest of it, it was all, always the same thing. It got easier. What did it do? People told me you had hallucinations and you saw things. I never saw anything. I mm. saw things pulse a little bit. Mm. But what was really going on was within a certain amount of time, you felt this great, great love. It's the only word you can come up with. Just loving everything you saw. It doesn't matter if it's a fingernail or a Cadillac or, mm. or you know, a, a beautiful, beautiful painting. It just all felt like one, not in a stupid way, but just suddenly there was no argument about it. It's mm. like, oh, my goodness, I see. I'm not alone. It's, it's, it, it, it's significantly meaningful, this feeling I'm having. And it was love at its best. And it yeah. didn't last. That was the thing. And eventually, wise men, mm. like particularly Rondas, came to the conclusion that it, it was good to get into a practice which would make this sustainable. Actually, you know, no. Yeah, you know right. what? Yeah. I mean, eventually, of course, eventually. he talked about that, be yeah. here now and all that. But when you talked about, you know, Leary and Alpert, and uh, the influence, you know, we've just said that influence is huge, obviously, you know, to encourage people to do this particular uh, substance in set and setting and do it right so that it is a spiritual experience um that's a big deal i mean that's enormous so but what happened is what you're describing what happened is richard alpert thought to himself i keep coming down number one 
and number two, I, I don't really have a, a, a roadmap for what this is. Again, that roadmap term. Um, and he, um, the first beginnings of any roadmap is when Huxley gave them psychedelic experience, the, uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, right? right. Not, uh, you know, and they, which they later wrote about in the psychedelic experience. They used some of that. But no, he gave them the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Anyhow, they started reading that, and some of the Bardo experiences were what they were experiencing on acid. Right. Right. right? So that gave them some idea that there's these different levels of consciousness. And so Richard Alpert at that moment decided to himself, I should go to the East to see if I can find a map of that kind of those planes basically that's exactly what happened and he had the courage to get over there and just put himself out there and and of course that journey is well documented uh you know in many different places but uh but he did have that uh he had that will to try and understand now he had a you know he was a psychologist and so on and so forth so there was a lot of disappointment that Acid didn't give him the you know the complete answer, um, or and couldn't sustain it as you said. So, mm. so that's huge because they were were in pop culture, and when we heard about him, when he came back from India that first time in 1968, many people started hearing because he'd go around lecture, and you know, you were willing to take this shot because it was Richard Alpert. So Absolutely that's huge. right, exactly, yeah. He said he was a model. And as he was so funny and down-to-earth and human and humane, likable, witty, great. Just great to be to watch from an audience. You didn't have to know him. You knew him because that's what he did. He came out there. And, and that model sort of implanted on the psychedelic confusion because eventually it did get to be confusion because it didn't last. So when you weren't tripping, what were you doing? You were actually making some kind of judgment that this wasn't available to you all the time. You had to take the substance. And what, you know, Ramdas did is, uh, and has been doing, and, and others, of course, was letting us know there were ways of doing this without taking drugs, and that they were the ways. And to recognize in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I think this is what happened, right, that, that, that they saw, they read what the bardos were and said, that's what was, just, that's yeah. what was going on Exactly. when yeah. I was tripping. Yeah. And naturally, as you said, Raghu, that led us to the east rather than to the west, right. except in terms of San Francisco. Right. <laughs> you know. right. And I guess, uh, so Richard Alpert being transformed to Ramdas was about to turn on a whole other segment of our community at the time.